Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in History. Uh, My guest today is Jay Douglas Smith. We'll be talking about his new book, On Democracy's Doorstep, the inside story of how the Supreme Court brought one person, one vote to the United States. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, It's a very, very interesting uh, book, very, very interesting topic. Uh, I'm glad that you decided to join us. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in History. Uh, my guest today is Jay Douglas Smith. We'll be talking about his new book, On Democracy's Doorstep, the inside story of how the Supreme Court brought one person, one vote to the United States. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a very, very interesting uh, book, very, very interesting topic. Uh, I'm glad that you decided to join us. Why don't you start off by telling us uh, a little bit about yourself and how you came to write it? Sure. So my, um, uh, I did my doctoral uh, training at the University of Virginia, and I was really immersed primarily in, in this, the program in Southern history, and my interests were really in, in Southern history, race, and politics. And interesting enough, though, my, my, my first, my dissertation, which became my first book, really focused on kind of Jim Crow, Virginia, and, and through the mid-20th century, what I like to think of as the last couple generations of, of Jim Crow, sort of World War One up through the Brown decision. And in doing that work, um, I discovered that in, in the ni- 1956, when the Virginia legislature passed a series of laws that came to be known as the Massive Resistance Laws, which which led um, which said that the Virginia would close its public schools rather than allow even token integration. Um, there was a Washington newspaper man by the name of Benjamin Muse at the time who pointed out that the the key measure uh, that led to the Massive Resistance Laws passed the Virginia Senate by a fairly narrow margin of 21 to 17, and the 17 senators who opposed closing the schools, who were not necessarily in favor of integration, but they just thought that the Supreme Court had spoken and, and that uh, and that resistance, further resistance was futile. But those 17 actually represented more Virginians than did the 21 who supported uh, massive resistance. And so I, I, I entered the topic of malapportionment through through this, this venue, really, and sort of started to think about... Um, Think about you know white supremacy and Jim Crow really as a as a uh, essentially as a, a byproduct of minority rule where you have a minority of, of the state's residents imposing these laws and so I began as I began to look for a, think about a second book I wanted to move beyond state study and I I, I really thought I was going to get into I thought what this was going to be was a regional study of sort of looking broadly at the South and ways in which malapportionment had been a, a key component of, of white supremacy and Jim Crow. Um, and given that a lot of the early um, uh, malapportionment cases come out of the South, that seemed to be where I was headed. But it didn't take me very long to figure out that I had sort of stumbled into a, what was very much a national topic. And while, yes, uh, uh, the South was was dependent on malapportionment to, to perpetuate Jim Crow, it turns out that in you know almost every state in the nation, uh, often for very different reasons, with very different political climates, uh, malapportionment was thriving. And I so it was a real education for me. Um, it was exciting to find out that I actually had, had stumbled onto a, a truly national topic, but also somewhat daunting and sort of trying to figure out how to, how to tell a national story without getting bogged down into, you know, 50 micro studies of, of individual states. So. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it is, it is surprising when you see the extent of it. I mean, we'll talk about some of these statistics here. Uh, they really are staggering. Um, but it's surprising how little attention this, I mean, it's not as though historians aren't aware of this, right? But it doesn't quite have the sort of central headline role that maybe it ought to have. Well, that's absolutely right. And I think, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, in the 1960s, when the, when the Supreme Court finally took up the, the cases, and it was in 1964 that, that the court handed down the final, you know, the final decisions, um, Obviously, there are a lot of other things made for headlines that were going on in the 1960s, the Civil Rights Movement, then the Vietnam War, um, event after event that really were in many ways uh, made for television um, and which provided much better news, whereas 
malapportionment can easily get bogged down in statistics and and you know what percentage of the people are electing what percent of the legislature and, and stuff that can get can can be fairly dry um, until you realize just how important it is. I think in the ways in which which it was actually provided for a, essentially a system of minority rule throughout the United States where rural areas and small towns were vastly overrepresented in state legislatures and in Congress. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it becomes this really important sort of framework in which to understand these pol- pol- policy outcomes during this period. Right. Um, uh, and and it's, it was surprising to me that even the advocates in your story, the people that are pushing for equal representation are, you know, I don't know, somewhat at ease or, you know, they're surprised at how far the Warren card goes in their decisions, right? Um, so even the people that are out in front on, on this issue are um, sort of, uh, I don't know, jaded or this is a question to you, but. Well, yes, no, I think that's absolutely right. And part of it, I think, to, to understand sort of the, to kind of provide the, uh, try to quickly to try to provide the basic framework is that. You know, throughout the first half or two-thirds of the 20th century, as the United States is, is urbanizing, and almost, you know, not in every state, but in most parts of the country, the, the urban population is growing. And what happens in many of these states is that as, as the urban populations grow, there's no reapportionment. And so with increased urbanization, you have um, greater and greater malapportionment. A perfect example is California, um, where, you know, when California became a state in 1850, it has a state constitution which says that both branches of the legislature will be based on population, and that was all fine and well throughout the 19th century when San Francisco remained a lot larger than Los Angeles, but then by the early 20th century, as L.A. was growing and Southern California was growing by leaps and bounds, folks in the Bay Area and in Northern California said, well, hang on a second, we're in danger of losing control of the legislature, and so they, they passed a referendum in, in 1926, which essentially said that no state senator could represent more than one county and no county, um, sorry, no state senator could represent more than three counties and no county could have more than one state senator. So that leaves with a situation by 1960 where Los Angeles County, which had by then grown to over six million people, has one state senator, as do, um, if you take three counties on the eastern side of the Sierra, which is a very rural area, um, uh, 14,000 people, the same amount of representation in, in the state legislature. So you end up with a situation where where you have a one branch of the legislature with you know representing roughly 12 percent of the of the population, um, and obviously the implications for public policy are staggering. It means you know every, any single piece of legislation um, uh, now has to you know can be can essentially be vetoed by uh, by the representatives of a small number of of the populace. Um, populace now as as states urbanize, and you see this especially in states like California or Illinois. Um, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, as the urban populations grow, you do have municipal officials who increasingly are agitated because the, the, the legislatures, which are rural-dominated, are not returning much money to the cities for schools, for, for highway improvements, for a lot of things that are of concern. And so there's this growing sense that the urban areas are providing the tax base and getting very little in return from, from the legislatures. And so in the wake of World War II, uh, you have this real... Uh, you know, as uh, with with and continued population growth, this really becomes comes comes to a head, if you will, and and sort of in direct response to your initial question is that the situation was so bad in so many states that I think a lot of advocates of of reapportionment simply were hoping that they could at least have one branch of the legislature based on population, and, that, and they weren't so much pushing for both because, after all, we do have the federal you know the federal model provided one option, and that seemed to make sense to people, that if the federal Congress, you have a Senate based on geography, a population, uh, a House based on population, then why shouldn't the states have a similar model? And so that, I think, for a lot of the early proponents, that was really as much as they were hoping for, um, that they would have a legislature of, of that sort. Of course, the problem with that is that you can still have, you know, one branch of the legislature can essentially veto any piece of legislation. Right. It means, you know, you sort of end up asking yourself, well, how much of the government is actually po- Represented by population, I mean, how much you know? How much of the democracy is this? You know, because you have bicameral legislature, sure, but um, if one, if, if a minority has control of one house and they're co-equal, right? And the United States is an outlier in this internationally. Um, they essentially have veto power. Absolutely, and 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 of course, one one of the fascinating aspects of this, we'll probably get into more later, is that after the Supreme Court decisions come down. And then there's this effort to actually overturn them. The the opponents of the court decisions, so the real the folks who had benefited most from malapportionment, 
began, you know, began this sort of campaign, this sort of series of scare tactics, one of which is that, oh, well, the next thing you know, the Supreme Court's going to invalidate the federal Congress, which was never contemplated. But they actually, you know, one of my favorite images from all of this was a, a map that was drawn of the United States, of what the United States Senate would look like if it was based on population uh, rather than, rather than, you know, by state. And so, you know, California would have had something like nine state senators along with Nevada. And, you know, and, and so... Um, there was that fear that if you took this to the extreme, of course, the Supreme Court had said from the beginning, look, the, you know, the compromise, the original Constitution was, was specifically drawn up, and we're not, no, no one's even contemplating touching that. So. Yeah, well, Ezra Klein had something on, uh, on his new uh, website the other day about, um, you know, the majority of, of the population, um, by, t- by something like 20 million, um, had voted Democratic in the last three cycles. Right. But they had, you know, 10 or 15 fewer senators. Right. Um, and, the, you know, and the, and the, um, the scholars who have looked at this at the, at the federal level have found, you know, that the same thing was happening is on the state level, that these small states repeatedly um, take far more than their uh, proportionate level of uh, revenue from the big states, which generate most of the wealth, Um, and yet veto constantly what the majority of the population is is, uh, asking for. Um, So, you know, it's it's not an issue that's lost any saliency. Um, uh, I like the way you begin the book. Um, The book is about... um, the Warren Court and its decisions, and how we um, how this changes, um, and you you lay out in the introduction that you begin with this lovely little story where um, there's a press conference in 1968. Um, the occasion is uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren's retirement, and these uh, journalists are asking him what his most important decision is. And this is you know Earl Warren, uh, you know whose court had laid down Brown v. Board of Ed, striking down segregation in schools, Gideon v. Wainwright, giving criminal defendants the right to legal representation, Miranda, Arizona, uh, protecting suspects from uh, entrapment. Um, so there's any number of uh, major cases for which he's well known. Arguably, he's still not, uh, the court is still not best remembered for the cases that you're discussing, but he doesn't you know, skip a beat. He says, absolutely, it's Baker Carr, Reynolds Sims, and these other cases um, which enshrine the concept of one person, one vote at the state level. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and he was very consistent at that beginning, you know, as you said, with the, the press conference when he initially announced his retirement all the way up, uh, you know, through his through his death when in, in 1974, whenever he was asked about this, he he felt that in terms of um, that, that as important as the segregation decisions were, that the reapportionment decisions um, affected the American system of democracy more thoroughly and completely, and, and you know every single individual um, was affected by those decisions, and that he sort of felt in terms of what what those de- decisions meant in terms of um, uh, the importance of each individual's vote, um, everybody's participation. That, that there were no there was no other decision that that so thoroughly and fundamentally um, addressed the American system of democracy. You know, you note that there had been various efforts to challenge uh, what was going malapportionment in the in the post World War II era, but legislatures essentially continued to act with impunity because the courts always refused to intervene, um, constantly sort of saying that uh, malapportionment, yes, it violated state constitutional requirements often, um, but the courts would claim that they couldn't or that they wouldn't get involved because districting was a privilege of the legislative branch and under separation of powers. It, it, you know, it was in Felix Frankfurter's uh, famous words, uh, you know, a political thicket into which the court was not uh, jur- jurisdictionally allowed to enter. Um, and so they refused later cases too until Baker Carr. So uh, maybe you should just, how does, how does, what's different about Baker Carr and how do we, how do we get to that decision? Sure, that's that's a great question, and 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 just to back up a little bit, so you you referred to you know Felix Frankfurter's um, uh, opinion in, in Colgrove, Colgrove versus Green, which was actually a, a case that challenged mal- malapportionment of congressional districts in Illinois uh, right around World War II. The decision was handed down in 1946, and that's when you know um, Frankfurter had been the most most strident advocate of the federal courts not getting involved. As you said, state courts simply wouldn't get involved. They said, well, yes, there's a problem here, but the legislature can only fix it. 
federal court sort of said this is for the states. Um, uh, Frankfurt in particular thought we have to we have to stay out of this. Um, I think what happens is that throughout the 1950s and, and Baker v. Carr comes out of Tennessee. Um, and it's important to understand sort of what was happening. What was happening in Tennessee is that, you know, the rural areas like I'm sorry, the urban areas like Memphis and Nashville and, and, and uh, Chattanooga as well. Uh, grew and grew and grew and felt like they were getting less and less um, a share of, of resources and were having more and more problems meeting meeting their needs. And so you have this actual very interesting coalition of um, kind of old line Memphis Democrats and East Tennessee Republicans um, uh, come together along with groups like the League of Women Voters uh, to begin really pressing for um, uh, for for reapportionment. The legislature continues to refuse. Uh, there, there are there's an, an effort in the mid 1950s that that gets um, goes to court and gets thrown out for the usual usual reasons. And to be perfectly honest, what in terms of the Supreme Court, what's different about Baker v. Carr? Um, in part, you have um, a changing and evolving Supreme Court um, that certainly certainly makes a difference. And so the the first hint that the Supreme Court might be willing to change its mind actually comes in, in 1958. There was a, a challenge to Georgia's county unit system. Georgia had a, had a unique system in which, um, in which statewide officials were, were, you know, were elected based on each county was assigned a certain number of units. So if you won the county vote, you got X number of, of units. And that allowed, again, the rural areas to have a way disproportionate Role, role in the system. So that was that had been challenged several times and thrown out. And in 1958, there were actually four justices. Uh, once um, William Brennan came onto the court, Earl Warren came under the court and sort of joined uh, William O. Douglas and, and Hugo Black. You all of a sudden had four justices um, instead of instead of just Black and Douglas, who began to sort of see that there were potentially equal protection violations with. Um, the county unit system with the, with malapportionment, and so even though this case didn't go anywhere in 1958, there was that was the first sign that there was increased interest amongst the Supreme Court. And this was all no one knew this. This was all behind the scenes, sort of there was speculation. Um, Baker v. Carr um, gets refiled or gets filed in, in Tennessee in 1959, a year later, and finally. Um, again, the, the Tennessee court, the district court, who, federal district court that hears it in Tennessee acknowledges the problems, even calls malapportionment an evil, um, says that it's such that the problems are so severe. But again, says the Supreme Court has said that we can't enter the political thicket. We don't have jurisdiction here. And so um, uh, so in 19, 1960, early 1960, um, the tennis lawyers for the Tennessee plaintiffs appeal to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court does an interesting thing. They they hold the case. They also had before them uh, Gamillion versus Lightfoot, the racial gerrymandering case out of out of Alabama, and they actually waited until they handed down their decision in Gamillion, where they unanimously um, found you know said that racial gerrymandering was unconstitutional, um, and then a week later they announced that they to some that they were had, were going to accept jurisdiction in Baker v. Carr, um, and at the time. You know, it, it, it requires four votes amongst the Supreme Court to grant to grant certiorari in a case. Of course, you need five to uh, to actually um, uh, to carry the day um, on, in the final in the final disposition. So there were four justices, not five, who who agreed to hear the case. Um, and Baker v. Carr is quite interesting in that it was it was it's one of the few cases that was argued not once but twice. Um, so it was finally it was argued before the Supreme Court initially in April of 1961. So it was actually the Eisenhower administration, it was the tail end of the Eisenhower administration um, that um, actually, when, when, when the court first um, agreed to hear Baker, and actually the Lee Rankin, who was a solicitor general at the end of the Eisenhower administration, he and the attorney general, uh, William Rogers, agreed that the, the Eisenhower administration would support the Tennessee plaintiffs. So this is actually, I think, a really interesting point about this is that it wasn't just, you know, the Kennedy administration that came into office a few weeks later, but the actual previous Eisenhower administration had also seen the need to be so great for real reform that that so you had both the Eisenhower administration and the Kennedy administration firmly behind Baker v Carr. Now, yeah, this is one of the, this is I'm sorry to interrupt. No, this no. is one of this is you know the one of the more interesting things uh, struck me is that you know Eisenhower comes this this you know as you said malapportionment be, becomes 
you know, it's a, it's a transcontinental thing. Um, uh, we find it everywhere. Um, but typically, and, and in the North as you, or in the South, as you say, um, it strengthens the power of, uh, these, you know, uh, white sort of supremacist, uh, uh, minority. I mean, I mean, tremendous amount of disenfranchisement of whites and blacks in the South. Um, and goes to the Democratic Party, which is the only party that's basically operating in the in the South after the Civil War up until the 70s or 60s. But um, in the North, this is typically malapportionment typically helped the Republican Party. I mean, you have this sort of weird paradox where you have these big cities, these big population centers that are Democratic, um, and yet the legislature is dominated by the GOP up until the 70s for for many of these states. Um, and yet Eisenhower comes in right away in 1953, right? And, and uh, puts into place the uh, Katzenbach uh, Commission, um, which ends up um, generating support, right, for reform on this issue. Right, the uh, Kestenbaum um, Commission. Yes, um, yes, it was a commission that was, that was um, appointed by Eisenhower and had a combination of, of sort of uh, both political figures and also some industrialists and business leaders and and they issued a report it was about and one of the things they found was that 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 malapportionment needed to be fixed and one of the issues that they they one of the things that they raised is they said look one of the reasons that um there's so there's so many um uh cities and and uh urban groups going to the federal government for help is because the states have been so bad at addressing some of these issues and that in fact if if we have, if we reapportion the, the the state legislatures, and the state legislatures begin to um, pay a little bit more attention to some of the urban issues, uh, that in fact um, there will be less need for the federal government to actually step in and and provide certain housing, housing and welfare, and educational um, assistance, and those 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 sorts of things. So yes, this was uh, I think part of a you know part of a broader good government, um, sort of more in the kind of the traditional progressive reform of, 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 uh, of, of having better government, um, uh, was, was, uh, and then also you, but then you also have, you know, it was under the Eisenhower administration that the justice department, um, that you create, that you have the first office of civil rights in the justice department. So, um, and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're intimately tied with this issue of malapportionment as you go forward into the Kennedy administration, the civil rights division plays a large role, um, in, in, in all of that, um, as well. So you do have this, this growing recognition that, that there are, you know, that, that really that the system that has evolved is, is, um, uh, just bad on so many levels while yes, you know, maybe it, it, maybe it promotes, um, certain advantages for the Republicans in the North, you know, the North and the Midwest, um, that, that the problems that it creates are, are even more important. Um, and so you have this this willingness to to step in and do something about this. Yeah. So, um, well, I mean, maybe we should throw out some statistics here. We've we've been talking about sure. this, but just to sort of anchor uh, some of the listeners, um, I'm looking at some of the figures here from your book. Um, uh, Congress decided not to reapportion for the first time in 1920 when the census revealed that the population was majority urban. Um, at the time, that was considerably important to the farm bloc and the prohibitionists. And this is right around the time when we have this revival of the Ku Klux Klan around the issue of immigration and they sealed the national borders. Um, you write that a dozen states had apportionment based on population alone. But in Delaware and Mississippi, for example, there was no consideration given to population whatsoever in either house. Um, most states used the classical um, federal combination of land area and population. But um uh, the like like the House of Representatives states guaranteed at least one representative per county, no matter how small. Um, what was known as the silent gerrymander, or refusing to reapportion, uh, as you know, every time there was a census taken. Um, Oregon doesn't have doesn't reapportion for a half century after 1907. Pennsylvania and Indiana don't do it for 30 to 40 years after 1920. Alabama and Tennessee don't do it for 60 years after the 20th century begins. Right. Um, so we have a situation by the time that the Warren Court is looking uh, to hear these issues. Vermont, you have districts where there are, the smallest district is 38 people. The capital, Burlington, has 38,000, and they both have the same number of senators, right? Um, New Jersey is represented by as few as, as and these are rough, I've rounded these figures out, but as few as um, 
50 people or as many as, or I'm sorry, 50,000 or as many as 500,000. Yeah. Georgia, it's 15,000 to 500,000. Idaho, it's 1,000 to 100,000. Um, you already uh, cited California, but Michigan is maybe the most striking example where you have, uh, uh, you say that the popular, the Democrats would have needed at least 70% of the popular vote just to control one chamber. Right. Um, you know, Detroit alone has 45% of the population in 1930. By 1950, half the union, uh, half the workforce in, in uh, Michigan is uh, uh, unionized. And yet, the with brief exceptions, the Michigan legislature is dominated by small and rural right. Republicans until the 1970s. Right. Um, and until only... You know, I, I hate to keep, you know, I, you know, I don't want to belabor the point, but I mean, you know, just to continue a little and wrap this up, you said by 1962, only five states, uh, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Oregon, West Virginia, Wisconsin had apportioned districts. So that majorities in both chambers represented at least 40 percent of the population in 23 states. It was less than 30 percent and 10 among those didn't even reach 20 percent. Um, and because these the legislatures could control con- congressional districts, it, it also meant that you had, you know, some of the, you note that some of the um, leading figures of the time, people like Sam Rayburn, right, who's famous as the longest running re- representative, uh, came from, you know, wins with fewer than 16,000 voters in 1958. Um, at least eight of the 20 committee chairs come from similarly overrepresented districts so that people like Wilbur Mills, right, the all-powerful head of right. Ways and Means, gatekeeper of social legislation in post-war America also comes from uh, this, sort of, this sort of rotten, bear, you know, this is rotten boroughs on a, on a mass scale. Um, so it really is, it really, I mean, it really was sort of at a crisis uh, level. I um, mean, it, it's sort of, as you say, it's easy to sort of overlook when you um, consider all the other momentous things that are going on at that time, but it, it also ties into Jim Crow. And I, I, I imagine that's a big part of, um, how it gets, how the momentum builds behind it. Well, it is, and, it, and it's. And let me um, make one 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 correction because it was actually my from what you're reading. One mis- one mistake that uh, that I that I realized the day the book was published was that in, you you refer to Burlington as how under, which was way underrepresented. Burlington is not the capital of Vermont; it's actually Montpelier. And I realized that the, somehow <laughs> I got through the editing, and the minute the book was published. Uh, literally on the day, I realized that 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 uh, the point there wasn't that it was the capital, but it was the largest city, of course. And and um, so you had you had states like Vermont and 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 um, Connecticut, which had which guaranteed every you know every city a or every town a, a member of the legislature, which is why you have such small districts there. Um, but the question about you know certainly Jim Jim Crow was important, as I said at the outset. You know, I sort of went into this thinking that this was all about Jim Crow, um, but. You know, as you've as you've just I think ably able, ably summarized, it, it became quickly clear how much it was about so much more than Jim Crow. Um, that that yes, I mean it's very clear that in these in these states where the the Democrats um, are the party of uh, uh, in, in the South that where they're they're committed to Jim Crow. Uh, that that um, and of course it's the it's the counties with the highest percentage of African Americans who are almost all disfranchised, where you have even more malapportionment, you know, because essentially you've got a very small number of whites in those counties who are really um, who have the political power. Because malapportionment is based on the entire, you know, the, the entire population of those black belt counties, but it's really only the whites within those already mal, you know, underrepresented areas that are that are that are being elected. And so it's sort of a, there's a double effect there in 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 many regards. Um, but as you, you know, as, as those statistics, and, uh, you know, I said at the outset, fortunately, I didn't have to do any of the statistical work. There were political scientists who, who actually did all of the, did this work, and and, um, and I, it was just my job to try to synthesize it in a way that sort of made sense and that presented the problem um, for what it was. But it is, I mean, it is absolutely staggering when you start to realize how, um, to the extent to which people were underrepresented in, 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 in the United States. And we had not that we're, that we've solved all the problems now. And in many ways, and I think this book seems even more timely now than it did 10 years ago when I started it in terms of some of the challenges that are facing, facing us, us facing us in, in elections and the whole issue of voting. Um, but, uh, you know, it just, it goes on and on throughout the country and, and, and the effect, you know, the, the potential effect that this has, malapportionment has on, on any piece of legislation, on any effort, um, 
know, when John F. Kennedy ran for president in 1960, he or, or one of his aides authored a piece that ran in the New York Times called "The Shame of the Cities." Uh, sorry, the shame of the states, which which really sort of made this, you know, highlighted this as a national issue and one that you know clearly urban voters were going to be central to Kennedy's campaign, and and so that in many ways that that helped elevate the issue to sort of a national discussion. At the same time, it was beginning to come to the you know to to reach the courts, and the courts were beginning to take a different look at it. Yeah, well, I don't want, I don't want to uh, uh, um, I want to get to the. Um main story here, but just to follow up on what you were saying before, I mean, um, Ira Kess Nelson has this new book out about the New Deal and and remarks in the introduction that it's odd how in earlier literature on the New Deal, the South is sort of a side note almost. Um, When uh, malapportionment, among other things, was hugely important because the total population would be counted, even though, as you said, so many people were disenfranchised in the South. And so the South while it has basically a minority of the population, essentially rules Congress, right. um, and everything has to pass um, through there. And so the New Deal is diluted, um, particularly when it comes to racial issues, um, because of this. Um, and even though population falls in the South, they retain that control into the Kennedy era. And so, you know, we task. Kennedy and these folks for not being able to do more, but in a sense, they're sort of handcuffed because we always forget that, you know, Congress is what makes laws and not presidents. They're not Kings. Um, so it, it really is just a, a huge issue historically. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, just to cite one example from the South, you know, Georgia had congressional districts where, where, you know, in South Georgia, which um, you had, you had, I think a district, you know, where someone represented 150 or 200,000 people. And then around Atlanta, where the, by the 1960s, most many African-Americans had settled, you know, there was the Congress, the, the, the congressman represented, I think it was, it was either 500,000 or at one time as high as 800,000 people. So there's just the disparity is enormous. And as you say, it's, it's, uh, it's fine to, to blame the, whether it's Roosevelt and New Deal or Kennedy for what they weren't able to do, but but there are you know there's there are realities here in terms of uh, you need the votes in Congress, and if those votes aren't there, what can you do? Yeah. Um, well, okay, so let's let's get um, into the story of the court and how this um, plays out. Um, there's some ironies in here. You, the chapter on the California in '48 um, notes that you know Earl uh, Warren uh, and Whitaker Baxter, which is. Uh, um, Company you can tell us about becomes um, very important to the to the fight later on. Uh, are in these early years on the same side of this representation debate. Right. So maybe you can talk about that and, and how that changes. And, and sure. Well, this. yeah. No. So so Earl Warren, for those who don't know, um, you know, and, until um, until yesterday when Jerry Brown was sworn into his fourth term as California's governor, Earl Warren. Was the only other person uh, to have served, and still the only other person to have served three terms as governor of California, and he was incredibly popular. Um, so much so that that uh, when he ran for re-election the second and the third time, um, I think both the Democrats and the Democrats made him their candidate as well. He was very successful governor of California, and as governor, he defended California's system of, of apportionment, which was essentially a version of the federal model. Um, we had a, a, a lower assembly that the assembly based on population. The state senate, as I pointed out, based on 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 area and in fairly extreme and uh, extreme system, but it actually worked pretty well in California. So even um, you know, unlike some of the other states where where malapportionment led to all sorts of regressive legislation or absolute lack of progressive legislation, I, one of the ironies here is that you actually had a fairly malapportioned legislature passing a lot of legislation in the 1950s that helped support the growth of the state. And, and Warren, Warren, as governor, essentially thought that its system worked pretty well. Uh, he said later on as chief justice, because you know, his critics constantly you know, brought this up and said what a hypocrite he was. He said, you know what? He said, looking at this from a political perspective as a governor, I saw it in one way. Uh, later on as a chief justice, I saw my, my responsibilities were, were no longer just to the state, but to the nation. And I came to see it in a different way. And I was wrong before. And he was very honest and open about it. He didn't hesitate for a second. He didn't try to make excuses or him and I just said he came to change his mind um, as he began to look at it, not as, as a governor, but as a chief justice. Um, so yes, there is, there is, an, and then um, I, a lot of irony in that. And then you point out the uh, Whitaker and Baxter, who were one of the real revelations for me in, in writing this book. Um, 
probably known to very few people, but uh, they were a, a husband and wife pair a team who were often considered to be the first political campaign consultants in the United States. And they were actually business partners first and then be, then got married. Uh, and their relationship is, is quite fascinating. They, they came on the scene at a time when California with, with, you know, had adopted the initiative and the referendum. And they were there at the right time. Uh, they were very good at their job. Um, their first campaign, they were actually hired. Uh, there was a, there was a ballot in the early 1930s, a ballot initiative in the early 1930s to create a publicly financed flood control system. And predictably, the, the large utility companies opposed it. And, and much to everyone's surprise, uh, it actually passed. Whitaker and Baxter were able to, on that, in that particular case, they, they represented David against Goliath. Um, they did such a good job that, that, that the utilities put them on retainer for life after that. So that was sort of the only time that they ever represented the... Uh, the, the smaller interest. And they went on, they essentially dominated California politics for about 30 years, both in terms of ballot initiatives and, and elections. Um, they even, um, they even worked for Earl, Earl Warren's initial campaign for governor. They, they were his campaign consultants, uh, but they actually had a, they had a falling out uh, towards the very end of the election as, as Warren began to actually moderate his position, uh, position on a number of things, Whitaker and, and, and Baxter, um, uh, they began to split to the point where they actually, by the end of the campaign, they weren't really speaking. Um, and, um, and then as, as, as governor, uh, he had to, they, they sort of, while Warren was governor, Whitaker and Baxter got their revenge when Warren proposed a system of statewide health insurance um, that uh, he thought was necessary. And, and Whitaker and Baxter were hired by the California Medical Association to, to kill that. And as a result of their work there, they were then hired a couple of years later by the American Medical Association to shoot down Harry Truman's plan for national health insurance. You know, what's that, 60 some years ago now, which, and of course, here with the, the debates over the Affordable Care Act, we're still fighting about. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So they're, they're, they're deeply, I think, very important to the story. And they really, they really uh, began to run campaigns in a new way, and we're seeing and doing that. And so we can talk later about how they enter the story, get their, 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 their son, um, uh, Whitaker's son. Uh, Baxter's stepson, how they he kind of led the campaign to overturn the Supreme Court's reapportionment decisions later on. Yeah. And and what about these other folks on the court? I mean, um, obviously this is uh, this is pivotal to the story. I mean, where where do these uh, you know when these cases start coming bubbling up? Um, where are the other who are the other figures and and where are they? What, what's their position on this? How much sure. of this is? I wonder how much of this is straight partisanship. Uh, in terms of the justices. Um, mm-hmm. Well, so so as I started to say earlier, um, so so Baker is Baker's fascinating in that it's, it's actually oral arguments are held twice in Baker. The first time it comes up is in April of uh, April of nineteen sixty one, and you have and the court is the court is divided at that at the initial hearing. You have um, Hugo Black and William O. Douglas who are FDR New Deal appointees, uh, Earl Warren and William Brennan who are both Eisenhower appointees. Um, you know, Warren, of course, had been the Republican governor of California, the Republican nominee for vice president in 1948. You know, if if Dewey had, in fact, defeated Truman, Earl Warren would have been vice president of the United States, not not governor of California. Uh, William Brennan, who was a Democrat, but Eisenhower it's appointed to the hoping to attract. Is, posted, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. It's important to note that, you know, Dewey's running as the, the modern Republican. Right. And so for you know people who aren't familiar with this, I mean, this uh, essentially meant that this was a faction within the Republican Party that thought that the future of the GOP's political fortunes after the New Deal would depend upon essentially making peace with the New Deal and, and eschewing the old right, which right. wanted to repeal these things. Exactly. Right. And so they, in, 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 in popular terms, these were known as liberal Republicans. Sure. And were at the very least, uh, certainly at least, at least moderate Republicans. Uh, certainly, yeah. you know, World yeah. Warren, I don't know if he would ever have thought of himself as liberal, but certainly... You know, uh, Warren in, in California and Dewey in New York were were not opposed to progressive social legislation and, and whatnot. Um, William Brennan, who who was a Democrat uh, from New Jersey, but Eisenhower appointed him to Supreme Court um, with an eye towards the 1956 election, hoping to draw upon both Catholic voters and and some Democrats. So the four of them were from the beginning in, in favor of um, uh, the petition of the Tennessee plaintiffs. They thought something should be done. At the other end. Uh, there was certainly Felix Frankfurter was was the um, uh, the most obvious and, and the loudest uh, opponent of getting involved. John Marshall Harlan, who was uh, um, uh, who had been a New York corporate lawyer, 
and whose grandfather uh, was the first um, Supreme Court Justice, John Marshall Harlan, who, of course, was the only person to dissent from Plessy versus Ferguson back in the 1890s. Uh, he joined Frankfurter. Uh, they were very much aligned and sort of opposing any sort of federal intervention, no matter how bad it was. Then you had Tom Clark, who's interesting, who was a Democrat from Texas who had been Harry Truman's attorney general. Um, and then Charles Whitaker, who we can get into his story a little bit later, who was a, essentially a, um, a Republican lawyer in St. Louis, uh, sorry, in Kansas City, uh, who was not very well known, had sort of rapidly ascended. Eisenhower appointed him first to the district court, then to the appellate court, and then to the Supreme Court in a very short period of time. He'd only been on the court for a couple of years and only and, and actually did not even survive Baker v. Carr. He, he resigned um, uh, before that case was even handed down. So the, the four of them were uh, Whitaker actually had a lot of there was a lot of uncertainty in his mind, but initially he sort of sided with with the Frankfurter group, and then that left Potter Stewart, who at the time uh, was the had been the most recent appointee to the court. Um, he was another Eisenhower appointee, a Republican from Cincinnati, Ohio, um, had been on the uh, the uh, Cincinnati City Council, and Stewart simply couldn't make up his mind. He really was right right in the middle. He thought that he understood Frankfurter's concerns, but he also saw that the, the issues here were so grave that. Um, that at the very least, perhaps the federal courts should be allowed to at least step in. So the initial, the initial, uh, you know, conference vote was four four. Stewart said, "I can't decide," so they put it over for reargument in in October of 1961. And as you can imagine, between early May and October, uh, during those five months, there was a lot of jockeying going on, especially on on the part of Frankfurter uh, trying to convince Whitaker and, and Stewart of the rightness of of his position. Um, at the end of the day, after some uh, vociferous exchanges and conversations and a great deal of, of hemming and hawing after the case was re-argued, Stewart reluctantly agreed that, um, that the plaintiffs ought to be allowed to present their case to the federal courts, that the federal courts did have jurisdiction, but he was very clear that he did not, that he was skeptical um, uh, that any sort of, that the federal courts could establish any sort of standard. Uh, that the states would have to meet in a portion. He was really not at all um, convinced that that the states could that the courts could get into that issue. That that was the legislature, but he was willing to acknowledge that there there may in fact be an equal protection argument here that the federal courts should not simply throw the cases out and say we don't have jurisdiction. And that really is the issue. So in Baker, which is ultimately handed down in March of 1962, the federal courts may adjudicate, uh, do have jurisdiction and can um, uh, can uh, hear reapportionment disputes. And of course, you have you know, William Douglas and others who wanted to go much further. Um, but at the time, it was, you know, you need five votes. And so Potter Stewart was clearly the swing vote. Um, now, it gets really interesting and, and kind of messy in the last couple of weeks right before the decision comes down, because Tom Clark, who all along had given no hint whatsoever that he was anything other than aligned with Frankfurter, um, sat down at Frankfurter's suggestion to write a dissent on a particular issue. And he said, I can't I simply cannot sustain a logical argument that I don't this is not this doesn't make sense. And so he actually switched his vote. Um, and Clark would have gone ahead, was Clark was willing to go ahead and address the issue of standards, which Stewart had not. So, in fact, the, the other four, uh, Douglas and Black and Brennan and Warren, could have, in fact, once Clark switched, had, had said, OK, we're going to go ahead and, and reach the issue of standards, which would have they would have lost Stewart. So they decided not to get into that. So what they essentially did is in Baker v. Carr, when it comes down, uh, the final vote was actually six to two because uh, the week before it came down, uh, Charles Whitaker. Um, uh, had or several weeks before he'd gone into the hospital, he suffered from severe anxiety and depression, and and the, and the debates over Baker v. Carr may have been sort of the final straw there. And so he ended up ends up resigning from the court um, just before um, or as the, as Baker is being announced. And so the final decision was actually six to two. And then essentially what Baker v. Carr did was open up the federal courts to challenges in every state, just about. Um, uh, challenging the actual makeup of the legislature, what standards should be followed. And so the, the issue over the next two years before we get to Reynolds v. Sims and the other state cases in 1964 is is really what is the standard going to be? Um, right, right. Yeah, um, you make the point. It's not that the bigger car is significant in that it, it tells states what to do, but it opens these right. these doors. And so this gets us to Reynolds Sims. This is uh, Alabama, right? And um, uh, we have a case where 
I just wanted to throw this in there. Um, you say there have been a thousand reapportionment bills introduced in the Alabama state legislature between 1900 and 1960. Not a single one of them passed. Right. Over the, and as you pointed out earlier, so Alabama was one of the states that literally had not reapportioned in 60 years, uh, I think since 1900 or 1901. And, and so, so there were, there were, you know, something like three dozen cases from different states around the country challenging both uh, legislative and congressional malapportionment. Um, ultimately, uh, in the 1963-64 year, the court hears uh, six of the state cases, um, cases from Alabama, uh, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, New York, and Colorado, and a congressional reapportionment case from Georgia. And so that's, that's where they really turn towards the issue of standards. Um, Reynolds v. Sims is the one that we usually talk about because that's the case that the court selected as the, the lead case. Um, as with Brown versus Board of Education, you know, with Brown versus Board, there were five different state cases, and Brown is, was the first one that they announced that that became the lead case. And so Reynolds v. Sims, which does come from Alabama, became the lead case, um, and then they then applied the findings in in, in Reynolds to to the other cases. Um, one of the points I try to make, and which I found most interesting, is that in many respects, I think actually it's the Colorado case of the six, which is the most important, because Reynolds basically said, um, uh, the Reynolds case was crucial in that it said that both houses of a legislature must be apportioned according to the principle of one person, one vote. Um, so that was that was seminal, that was crucial, that was important, that was a big surprise. I don't think even you know uh, that many people expected the court to go quite that far. Um, but because things in Alabama had been so bad, if you just looked at at, at Reynolds alone, there's sort of it's still some the possibility that you might have some wiggle room. You know, does that mean that districts can be, you know, 10, 15, 20 percent uh, different from others? The Colorado case is very different because the Colorado, the Colorado, Colorado in the wake of Baker. So in 1962, after Baker v. Carr comes down, Colorado voters went to the polls and they adopted a plan which provided for a one branch of the legislature specifically based on population and for a Senate based on a combination of, of population and geography. So I think it left the, the Senate something like 35 percent of the of the populace could could elect, could control a majority of the state Senate, whereas it took a, a real majority to control the, the lower house. And this was seen as pretty good. You know, not many states had a system quite that good. Um, but in the Colorado case, and, and the justices were more evenly divided on that one than they were on you know, the Alabama case and some of the other cases where the malapportionment was so extreme. In the Colorado case, um, the court essentially was saying that one person, one vote means that. And there's really very, very, very little wiggle room here. There's not, you know, it's not okay to have only 35% of the population um, electing a majority of the of, of, of one branch, even if the other one is based on population. So that was really what I think if the court had simply, you know, if, certainly if the court had adopted a standard just said one branch has to be based on population, the other you can do whatever you want, like with the, you know, with the federal government, there wouldn't have been much opposition. But I think it was the fact that that they were so, um, they, I think they realized, well, there's, where do you draw the line? And other than going with a straight population standard, it was going to be impossible to draw a line somewhere halfway. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and what's the, what's, how, tell us about the Justice Department. What, what's their role in all this? Sure. Well, I think it's, it's certainly this is one of the fascinating parts of doing the research for this and that you had um, uh, you know, the, the Kennedy, you know, Kennedy, as I said earlier, as a presidential candidate had, had openly committed himself uh, to believing that, that more better representation, especially for urban populations was, was necessary and was right. The Justice Department um, stepped into the fray and 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 um, did in fact support the plaintiffs in um, in virtually well in all of the reapportionment cases. The one the one place though, and this provides real sort of some some drama behind the scenes drama to the story. The one question there with all with the with the Kennedy administration though was that you had Archibald Cox, who was the Solicitor General. Um, had come from the Harvard Law School faculty, had once upon a time been a student of, of Felix Frankfurter's. He was cautious by nature. And I think he believed, some people have said, have sort of said that, oh, he was just, you know, he was almost like Frankfurter. I don't believe that. I actually think that, I think that Cox was, was, um, 
you know, was, was not really Frankfurtian in this, in this regard, but that he believed that the court, that, that the administration should not push the court too far too fast. I think he underestimated how far the court was willing to go um, by, by a long degree. And he even admitted later, you know, several years later after this had all blown over, he, he acknowledged that his concerns and fears were, were overblown. Um, you know, he worried that, that, um, if the, you know, if the court went too far too fast, it would lead to all sorts of unrest and sort of the, the kind of anti-court sentiment that you had in the wake of the Brown decision. Um, so you do, you do have these sort of some interesting, um, negotiations behind the scenes where you have, you know, Burke Marshall, who is the assistant attorney general in charge of the civil rights division and Nicholas Katzenbach, who's the deputy attorney general, Robert Kennedy is the attorney general who all are, are really ready to, you know, to put the, put the federal government on the side of a strict one person, one vote standard, whereas Archibald Cox wasn't willing to go that far. So the federal government briefs end up being sort of these, this tortured exploit, you know, these tortured, uh, uh, documents that, that basically are willing, you know, won't won't adopt a specific one person, one vote standard, but, but argue for a kind of everything just short of that. And that you have to have, you know, the, you know, adequate representation, um, but without really saying how far you can, you know, that you have to go the whole way. Um, but I think it did matter to some of the justices. There's one account where, where Potter Stewart was actually asked what the Eisenhower administration's position had been. It mattered to him and Baker that the Eisenhower administration, as well as the Kennedy administration, had been, had, had been supportive of, of some of these steps. Um, so the Justice Department, I think, in terms of you know putting the the, the imprimatur and the, the force of the federal government behind these decisions was did play an important role. Ultimately, you know the briefs that they filed, I, I wouldn't want to say they didn't have a they weren't important to the court, but they ultimately did not guide the court, and the court decided to go to go for it essentially, um, despite yeah. the hesitations of the of the of the Justice Department. Yeah. Well, and, and this sparks a real um, fierce reaction in part because there's some fear. I mean, I wonder how, how, how far reaching you think this uh, fear was, but a fear that this would actually, you know, because the court, that this would extend to the federal level because the court right, makes a point of saying this is the, the federal level, the federal system of unequal representation is exempt, the Senate essentially. Right. Well, I think, I mean, I don't think that, you know, um, I think I mentioned earlier that in in, in, the, in the last part of the story, when you get to the real backlash, there were people who, you know, were trying to raise the issue of, oh, gosh, this is going to threaten the, the federal, you know, the federal system, um, you know, the composition of the, of the U.S. Congress. I don't think the Justice Department was really too too worried about that or that there wasn't there was no real discussion that, um, you know, that a, that a one person, one vote standard was going to lead, you know, because, because the U.S. Congress is so clearly. Um, the product of a very clearly documented compromise between you know, smaller states and larger states during the during the original constitutional convention, um, there was no one no one credible, I think I would say, who was actually arguing that that you know the reapportionment decisions were going to threaten that. Um, it was used as a scare tactic later on in trying to reverse some of the, the court's decisions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this uh, this was trying to sort of. Um this gets us to uh, Everett Dirksen and the and the and the backlash. Um, um, Dirksen is the uh, minority leader, GOP representative from uh, Illinois, one of the badly represented uh, uh, states in the union, um, and he hires Whitaker Baxter to essentially launch this uh, repeal campaign. Um, I mean, you know, it's sort of odd that that. You note that for every editorial that celebrated the court for the decision, there was another editorial that uh, lambasted at the uh, John Birch Society, which, of course, is not terribly mainstream, but was influential enough um, in the conservative movement, um, launches this impeach Earl Warren campaign. Dirksen's talking about having the, you know, the first constitutional convention since 1789, um, uh, and they're talking about stripping the court of certain powers. Um Tell us about that. Maybe we should sort sure. of go out talking about that and, yeah. and why that fails. Sure, absolutely. So, so the so June June um, June of nineteen sixty four is when the when the Supreme Court hands down the state the, the the decisions in the state reapportionment cases, saying that you know all state legislatures have to 
um, ascribed to a, you know, a principle of one person, one vote. And the reaction is immediate. I mean, you have, I think, within days or something, more than 100 bills in Congress are are, are introduced. And some of the, you know, the most far-reaching ones are um, not coincidentally, you know, which many of which are, are, are sponsored by, you know, Strom Thurmond and some of the, 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 the most uh, uh, strident uh, white supremacists in Congress, you know, want to strip the Supreme Court of... Um, uh, of all jurisdiction relating to reapportionment. Uh, there's others, you know, there was other measures to try to, um, to create like a super court of the union, which would include the chief justices of all the state Supreme courts that could override the Supreme court. And so there really was this, you know, this, uh, this very whole, a whole wide range of bills and, um, you know, all aimed at sort of at undermining the court in the wake of the reapportionment decisions. Um, as things settle a little bit, Everett Dirksen emerges as kind of the leader of the anti-reapportionment forces. And as you mentioned, uh, Illinois provides just this wonderful example because the, the two senators from Illinois at the time were Everett Dirksen and Paul Douglas. Paul Douglas is from Chicago. Uh, he's a liberal Democrat, you know, right down the line, one of the most liberal members of the United States Senate. Um, ironically, you know, he was a former a former professor who had actually uh, written about um, Reapportionment. Uh, Everett Dirksen is from an, you know, old uh, family of German immigrants who settled in central Illinois. You know, he's from the town of Pekin, which is outside Peoria. I mean, if you could, you couldn't come up with, you know, more sort of classic Middle America uh, product than Everett Dirksen. And um, uh, so they, in many ways, I think come re- come to represent the two sides of this debate: the sort of the more urban base and the more not so much rural but small town America. And, you know, for Dirksen and his supporters, but what's interesting about Dirksen is that, you know, yes, he's from small town America, but he's got really strong ties and connections with the Chamber of Commerce, with the Manufacturers Associations, with the really large business groups. We haven't really talked about this yet, but it's, it's, you know, it's as much urban-based business interests who like the way, you know, prefer the the rural-dominated legislature because it, they keep taxes low. They they are less inclined to pass labor, you know, pro labor legislation, uh, that sort of thing. So this is so. Dirksen's initial attempt, what he does first, is to try to push a constitutional am- amendment through the U.S. Senate. Of course, it requires two thirds of the votes to do that. Um, and consistently, they actually tried three separate times over the next three years, and they consistently got fifties. I think fifty eight, fifty nine. Uh, maybe as many as 60 votes, but never quite the two-thirds necessary to send it to the states for, for ratification. Um, and ultimately what they settled on was a bill that would have allowed essentially for the federal system at the state level. Um, so some of the earlier, more uh, more extreme bills um, you know, got tossed by the wayside over, over time. Um, but you had this really uh, kind of unique uh, and very ironic situation in September of 64, August and September 64, it's actually liberal Democrats who launch a, what was referred to in the press as a little filibuster to slow down action on the Dirksen Amendment, whereas it was only just several months before that Dirksen had actually led, um, uh, led the, the vote to, to end the Southern filibuster against the civil rights movement. So you right. do have actually, you know, a sort of a little filibuster involved in sort of postponing um, uh, a vote. Uh, ultimately, the Dirksen Amendment does not, does not get enough, does not get the two-thirds votes um, it's brought back up in subsequent years, and, and the vote doesn't ever really change in that regard. But in the meantime, as you say, Dirksen hires Whitaker and Baxter, and by now, um, Clem Whitaker has died, and his wife, Leona Baxter, has retired, but his son, her stepson, Clem Whitaker Jr., now runs the firm. And so they oversee a national campaign to call a constitutional convention, which, in theory, would have would have um, uh, had the power to to um, you know modify the Supreme Court decision to um, or to you know put in place what the Dirksen Amendment had had envisioned. So in the span of five years, from 1964 to 69, there are actually um, uh, 33 states, state legislatures, petitioned Congress to call a constitutional convention. Now it only would have required theoretically 34 states to do that. Um, this has never been done. Um, you know, there is a there is a clause in the Constitution that says you know, there are two ways to amend the Constitution. Congress can pass an amendment, and send it to the states, or the states can call for a convention. Of course, this this has never happened. Um, 
it was somewhat dramatic, although it plays out over five years. And, and you know, when it was in the 20s and even up to the, the high 20s, no one was really paying much attention. Once once you get up to 32 states, and then, of course, in the spring of, of, of 1969, when Iowa becomes the 33rd state, people really start asking questions. And, and there were there were pro- proponents of, of reapportionment who started saying, well, not all these petitions are valid because some of them were passed by malapportioned legislatures. In order to be valid, you'd have to reapportion the legislature, then pass a petition, um, which led to this sort of mouthwatering possibility that the Supreme Court would end up having to decide on the legitimacy of some of these petitions. But um, it never got that far. Um, others, including Dirksen, were actually behind, behind the scenes, you know, very clear that they they did not want a constitutional convention to, to have, and they thought that the threat of a constitutional convention would be enough to get Congress to pass, you know, the Senate to pass an amendment um, uh, so that they would avoid, because of course, you know, then the people start talking about, well, a constitutional convention, well, you can't limit a constitutional convention to only one issue, the entire constitution right. yeah. is up for grabs. We don't really know because we've never had one since the original one, um, but there right. was this really fan- fascinating um, series of issues at play in terms of, well, you know, not only which petitions are legitimate, and which aren't, but what would a constitutional convention actually look like, and who would decide, and 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 et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then in in uh, in the early fall, um, uh, right around early September of 1969, actually, Everett Dirksen died from uh, died from cancer, and already by then. A number of states had begun to reapportion, and a few states even talked about rescinding their petitions. And so the the movement towards the convention actually sort of essentially died with Everett Dirksen um, in many respects. But but it was a um, quite a remarkable backlash that that took place again, sort of in the undercurrent of you know behind the scenes of the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War movement, you know anti-war movement, things which were much more likely to make the news. This was this was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, I don't want to take us out by um, ending on a downer, but um, there's there's two sort of in, um, at least two things you can you can add to the list um, that I took it from the end is that you know for uh, well maybe sort of accepting the the South and the importance of this to Jim Crow, um, the, you know the, the cities, especially the northern cities where most of the population had been for so long. Um, had really labored or been cheated by, you know, underserviced and underrepresented by the system. Um, but the the sort of tragic irony for them is that um, no one sort of really seems to get that the, the country is rapidly suburbanized. And so the real winners end up being the suburbs when we reapportion. Um, and so the policy outcomes sort of follow the, the sort of weird hybrid politics of the suburbs. Um, and then the folks in at the congressional level um, who are affected by this, you know, you, you know, scholars who have talked about how this is the background for gerrymandering. Right. Yeah. So, and I, both, I mean, you're absolutely right about both those points. So on the, on the first point, yes, it is, it is sort of a, a real irony that, that, and Earl Warren even acknowledges in an interview in the mid 1960s that he recognized that, you know, the, that to have brought the sort of, the, to have brought the, kind of level of change to urban policy that really would have benefited the cities, these decisions would have had to, would have been needed to have been handed down in the 1920s or 30s, that by the 1960s, it was in many ways too late to, um, uh, to really address the most serious urban, urban problems. Um, I think for Warren, though, there was, you know, while tragic that that might be, there was still, there was a principle involved here. And it didn't matter, you know, for him on one level, it didn't matter who actually ends up benefiting most, that that, that principle was sacred. And the notion that, that everybody's um, vote would be would be counted the same was, was paramount. Um, although he did, as I said, rec- recognize kind of the, 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 tr- the tragic irony there. On gerrymandering... Um, you know, it's it's gerrymandering existed long before these decisions. Of course, you know, the term itself comes from the early early 1800s and in, in a district, you know, the districting in, in Massachusetts. Um, so certainly, gerrymandering existed at the time, and the court was very aware. There was I actually had a long, really interesting conversation with Earl Warren's law clerk about this, who essentially drafted the the these opinions, the Reynolds opinions. You know that they were they they knew that gerrymandering was an issue. Um, you know the New York Times referred to gerrymandering as the twin evil of malapportionment, and so they weren't naive in thinking that you know this was going that the, the reapportionment decisions were going to get rid of gerrymandering. But I think they felt that at the time 
that the malapportionment was the more serious issue, that it affected more people. You know, gerrymandering existed, but it wasn't as necessary if you could simply draw districts with vastly different numbers of people in them. You didn't have to right. make up crazy lines. Um, and so they felt that this was, you know, that, that in many respects, this had to be tackled first and then gerrymandering, you know, would perhaps be next or down or down the road. Of course, we're in a situation now where you know, gerrymandering has become increasingly sophisticated and with, you know, computer programming, it's really sophisticated. And then you have a Supreme Court now where five members have consistently said that, you know, gerrymandering for political reasons is okay. Um, you know, the, the court in Gamillion versus Lightfoot in 1960 said racial gerrymandering is not okay, but political gerrymandering remains okay, you know, and, and until uh, Anthony Kennedy or his successor decides to change their mind. And you, um, you know, I try to make the point that, that um, I mean, I think, we, I think we tend to underestimate the importance of the malapportionment decisions because you do, you know, have gerrymandering and other things that are, that are in place now. Um, but that if you, you know, if you were to get a fifth, per, a fifth justice to change their mind, you know, any, any sort of decision now striking down political gerrymandering would be every bit as remarkable and revolutionary as what the court did with, with Reynolds and, and the reapportionment decisions. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, and I can't help but think that this is related. I, I was, you know, doing my own research on this um, related to the subject. I mean, I came across uh, Greg Coker's book on filibustering. And, and, you know, if you chart this historically as well, it's right around this time period that the filibuster becomes, you know, uh, the, the numbers just go up and up and up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, at the federal level, uh, the minority has found the, politi- the popular minority has found ways to obstruct. Yeah. Uh, and in the same sort of vein. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I've taken a lot of your time. Oh, my pleasure. Um, uh, there's a traditional question we ask here, and that's what are you working on next? Uh, well, that's a great question. I actually, I I have not yet fully committed to it, but I'm increasingly inclined to think that uh, Whitaker and Baxter, who we talked about before, I think deserve uh, a much closer look. Um, not not specifically as a biography, but as 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 sort of the the founders of of what has become modern day political campaign consulting and management. I just think there's so much there, and they they provide a really interesting personal story to go along with what is a really, I think, critical, um, public policy story. So I'm, I'm, I'm edging closer and closer towards, uh, you know, launching, launching into a, a, a book on, on Whitaker and Baxter. I would enjoy reading that. Well, Doug, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, it's a great book, all the best with it. Oh. Um, and I hope, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs>